Welcome to Leaders and Legends of Online Learning, a podcast dedicated to the experts. Thank you for listening. Each episode will be learning from the world's leading thinkers and practitioners in online learning and linking to ideas relevant to online teaching, working with online learners and digital education. You can listen to the experts and check their profiles and link to some of their work on our website, www.onlinelearninglegends.com. I'm Mark Nichols, the interviewer in this episode. You'll meet Professor Sarah Guri Rosenblatt in this episode. Sarah is an active scholar with multiple books and over 100 articles concerned with distance and online education to her name, one of which famously established that online and distance education are not the same thing. Professor Guri Rosenblatt is in the Department of Education and Psychology with the Open University of Israel and is a firm advocate of open education. I'm talking with Professor Sari Guri Rosenblatt, who is Professor in the Department of Education and Psychology with the Open University of Israel. Sarah has an extensive research history in the area of higher education, with a particular focus on technology and distance education. And one of her 2005 articles, Distance Education and E-Learning Not the Same Thing, is one article I've cited many, many times. She's an international contributor to the field of online learning, and it is my privilege to welcome her to the podcast. Sarah, it's great to be talking with you at long last. With you too, Mark. So Sarah, can we start with a brief <laughs> overview of your career and publications? It goes back to October 1976 when I joined the Open University. I was there a master degree student at Tel Aviv University. The Open University opened its gates to the first class of students. I was the first course coordinator of a course in education on curriculum development. After three years, I went to Stanford University for my PhD. After returning from Stanford, I joined the senior faculty at the Open University. Uh, my last post was the vice president for academic affairs. Uh, prior to that, I was for five years dean of educational development and uh, technologies, and also the head of the department of education and psychology. Throughout my career, I was involved in a member of many international forms and bodies. Uh, I was in the Scientific Committee of Europe and North America. You know that in UNESCO, Israel belongs to Europe, uh, North America, uh, mm -hmm. of the UNESCO Forum of Higher Education, Research and Knowledge. I was one of the 30 scholars in the Fulbright New Century Scholars Program on Higher Education in the 21st Century. Uh, I was in the Bologna Experts Program, European Science Foundation, Woodrow Wilson Foundation, and so on. Currently, I'm a member of the University of the Future Network and also a member of the experts of the PhD Symposium of Eden, European Distance Education and E-Learning Network. I published books in more than 100 articles and encyclopedia entries and chapters in books on various issues of higher education and distance education. Mm, what a fantastic heritage you have. Sarah, can you tell us a bit about the Universities of the Future Network? Um, what, what is that concerned with? What, what are some of the work it's doing? We uh, were established actually by the Vice President of Universitat Obierta de Catalonia, and mm -hmm. uh, we are currently, I think, 20 uh, professors from 18 or 20 countries. And we are trying to uh, analyze various futuristic scenarios of higher education. Actually, only five of us are coming from uh, distance teaching universities. All others are from campus-based universities. One of our members is from Penn University, and we had two years ago conference there in University of Pennsylvania. 
And each year we have a conference. Uh, the last one was in Latin America, in Buenos Aires. It was via uh, because of the corona. Uh, so we didn't meet face to face, but uh, it was through Zoom and YouTube. And we continue working. And now we also submitted a big project for cost in, in Europe to, to see how how uh, the blended learning and all the impacts of the COVID-19 uh, have on higher education. Mm, so it's uh, three years already that we're working and quite intensive. So Sarah, you, you've published, as you said, over 100 articles. Um, there are many good books that you've also presented, and I've, I've read some of them. Um, thank you for your great contribution to Distance Education Scholarship. I wonder if you could talk about some of the ideas and themes that your work has provided that you sense are still particularly <clears throat> pertinent today. Yes. Uh, first of all, my first book in the podcast, it will not be seen, but you can see it. It is Distance and Campus Universities, uh, Tensions and Interactions. As I said, I'm uh, uh, doing research on comparative higher education, not only distance education. And what caught my attention is that when you read uh, research in higher education, distance teaching universities are rarely mentioned. And if mentioned, they are described as operating on the margins of higher education systems. When you read the literature on distance education, so open universities are the most important innovation since the medieval universities. It is the most uh, important invention in the 20th century and so on. So for me, it was very interesting to see how different academic cultures had an impact on the development of open universities. So not just to describe the university per se, but to see how it operates in the national milieu in which it was established. So in my first book, I choose five universities, the UK Open University, Ferran Universität in Germany, UNED in Spain, Atabasca in Canada, and Israel. We were established in a span of six years, since 1969, when the Open University in the United Kingdom was established, and the last mm -hmm. one in 1975. And I analyzed how they developed and were influenced by the academic culture in each country, and they developed very differently. Also, they proclaimed that they are based on the Open University of UK, they developed very differently. For example, Fern University and UNED from the very start didn't adopt an open access policy at all. So Germany was a leading technology nation. It decided not to adopt radio and TV because it will be looked down by the academics in Germany and so on. And my last uh, chapter, which in, because of the Fulbright New Century Scholars, we celebrated now 25 years of the program. So basically, we also published a book on how higher education will be looked in the next decade. And I contributed a chapter on the impact of the academic cultures. And I believe that academic cultures in New Zealand, in Australia, in Germany, in Israel, have a huge impact on the way that the higher education institutions, including Open University, are operating. And it is very pertinent to this day. Mm, mm. So you've done a lot of work on open universities and distance education in particular. Now that online learning is becoming much more of an international feature uh, and more of a standard way of how education is offered, do you think open universities and distance education uh, are no longer the unique thing they used to be? Um, unquestionably, they uh, experienced an identity crisis. Innovative features that they were... Uh, 
they pioneered into higher education were adopted by campus-based universities. So obviously they are not so innovative as they were in the 70s and in the 80s. But many campus universities adopted now, especially after the Corona crisis, is the technologies in an emergency style. It was suddenly they had to adopt it and it yielded a lot of bad results. So many now say, wow, technology is not exactly the thing and I don't want to, to, to teach anymore by Zoom and so on. So I believe that the open universities, distance teaching universities, around 60 like that, Alan Tate said, they have a huge uh, role in collaborating with campus universities in this uh, sense. But I want to return to also other things that I worked on, if it's okay. Mm -hmm. The second book that I had was the Digital Technologies in Higher Education, Sweeping Expectations and Actual Effects. And this was also, I tried to analyze the huge gap between the rhetoric in the literature, dealing with the impact that the technologies can have on higher education and what happens in reality. I, I believe that we still lack an institutional and macro level analysis of these things uh, because the people say a lot about how it can influence and change totally the role of the teachers and students and academia and so on. But most universities still work the same way that they worked 20, 30, 40 and even 100 years ago. Another thing that I, I have also an uh, article on it is the Tower of Bubble Syndrome. I call it the Tower of Bubble mm -hmm. Syndrome, because what happens in the discourse on the online, even you call it uh, leaders and legends in online education. So it's not very clear what online education is. So uh, once in, in one of my articles, I out, outlined 12 different terms that describe exactly the same phenomena, but, but they use different terms and vice versa. Sometimes you use the same term and you mean totally different things. So basically, this is something that you should pay attention. If a course has a site and the lecturer downloads articles, it's not online education, but you call it online education. And then when you do research, you, you do not know exactly how to relate to, to the results. Mm. One more mm. thing, as you said, the article of distance education and e-learning, not the same thing. <laughs> I would say that currently online education is used more in as numbers, yes, more in campus-based traditional universities than in open universities. In many huge distance teaching universities that do not have the facilities of internet and so on, still use the printed or radio and TV uh, modes. So of course they interact, but it's not synonyms. Online and distance education mm -hmm. are, are totally not synonyms. And it seemed to me important to out outline this effect because it's very important how we read the uh, results. And the last thing that I worked on in the last years is about the lack of enough research on e-teaching. We speak a lot mm -hmm. about e-learning and the importance of uh, the learner and uh, learner-centered programs and so on, but uh, not enough on teachers and teachers as the key for the success of the implementation of the digital technologies. So basically, these are the things that I think I worked on and they are still, I think, pertinent even today. Mm. Can I pick up on the conversation about online and distance education? A lot of organizations now are using online tools uh, to facilitate education that doesn't take place in a classroom. And it's not uncommon for people to say, oh, we're doing distance education now. 
Now, I, I suspect uh, your heritage and distance education would suggest, well, actually, no, it's not quite the same thing. Uh, that distance education organisations tend to be structured very differently. Um, the educator has a very different role. Can, can you talk a bit about the difference then between how online and distance uh, might be equated in, in modern times, but uh, it's not appropriate to use the terms interchangeably? But Mark, you know, it's not only distance teaching universities. I have even an entry in one article that dealt with diverse models of distance education. So mm. basically in mm. New Zealand, you do not have a full-fledged uh, open university like in Britain. And uh, in the United States, the same thing. They have extensions of universities. Mm. And you mm. have uh, sometimes the university joining forces in some countries, then it's a consortia offering distance education. So there are not only distance teaching universities, there are many modes of distance teaching. And if a campus-based university is offering its studies uh, to students outside the boundaries of its campus, it's also distance education. That's mm. true. Mm. So, so basically it's not it, it's not kind of the territory of the only open universities that they can claim that they're offering distance education. But many times you are in the campus when we, I was in Penn University. So for their on-campus students, they also are oriented to outside the, the campus. But for their campus-based students, they also offer uh, online education. So basically, we have to be aware where and what is the context for offering such studies. So they teach only 20,000 students on their campus, but they approach millions outside the, the mm. university. Mm. So basically, now it changed very much because more and more campus-based universities offering the, the whole MOOCs and open educational resources. So basically, they are directed to students that are outside the campus. So basically, the differences are, are huge. And uh, I, I believe that, that distance education, even by campus-based universities, is going to grow in, in the future. I would like to see more collaborative ventures. Like the future learn. You see, future learn in uh, England is exactly an example that it's led by the Open University, but 70 something other partners and campus based universities and organizations joined it, which is a very nice endeavor to imitate. Sarah, I want to pick up on some of your more recent work on e teaching. Um, so, what are some really good examples of e teaching? What, what really impresses you uh, by how some educators approach online education? I believe, and it's also mentioned in your last book, I believe that most of the research now that is expressing uh, on e teaching is too much on the micro level. It goes into a classroom, it says this teacher A, B, and C, so and so, and what are the results? I believe that if the institution is not going to adopt a policy and support the teachers, uh, support systems that are ongoing support system. A lot of money put into it because it costs money, it's not less. This is also one of the problems mm. because when the Open University in Britain was uh, established, so this iron triangle of John Daniel, they spoke a lot about that it's cost effective. I believe that online education is not cost effective. It's mm. sometimes even mm. at the beginning, it costs more. So I think this is part of the identity crisis of the large-scale distance teaching universities. Because the whole idea was that you have a small nucleus of academic faculty that are developing uh, programs that thousands and sometimes even millions of students are studying. And this is how you get the cost effectiveness. This is not the case by online education because the interaction between students and the 
teacher, professor, instructor, however you call it, is so important. So it does mm. not provide the same uh, cost-effective thing as did the industrial model of distance education. And this is part of the difficulty of many uh, distance teaching universities to move to online at my university. You helped me to organize a tour at the Open University when you transformed the courses in UK Open University to online. We were greatly impressed. We started doing it, but I think less of a third of our courses at our university are currently online. The majority of our courses are still offered mainly by printed matter. So each course has a site. But still, students are studying from printed books and printed mm -hmm. units and so on. So it is very difficult because we have in our university 47, 48,000 students. The senior academic faculty is only 100. So it's mainly course coordinators and tutors. This is a very different structure than a campus-based university. I think a very good example of promoting e-teaching is in Penn University. They have the programs that is called Open Learning Initiative. And at the beginning, it was established for producing MOOCs that I thought that I think more than 4 million students studied. But they also established a special kind of division a department for this reason, and they are doing wonderful things. Now they are offering BA, master degree, and even uh, doctoral uh, studies, full studies uh, mm -hmm. online, which is was possible because they kind of invested in it a lot, a lot. Also money and faculty involved and so on. So if you are not doing it at an institutional level, the e-teaching is going to improve uh, very slowly. Mm, yeah. So the organization needs to be built around that model at that higher level, not just the micro level of practice, exactly. uh, but the macro level of context. And it's kind of the, the devotion of the university and its proclamation of saying we are moving to online or we are going to support online and doing things for that because the individual teacher for the individual teacher can do a lot of wonderful things, but it's not enough. It's really not mm. enough to, 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 to really uh, utilize efficiently and effectively all the potential that the technologies are offering us. So, Sarah, um, you've, you've made mention already of COVID and emergency remote teaching. So we're now in the latter half of 2021. What are your observations about online education at the present time? As I said, many universities were forced to enter the online uh, education and they did it as an emergency strategy. And this is why many things, they, they kind of uh, took what they know in a classroom teaching and moved it to uh, Zoom or some other mm. platform. And this is not the case because you cannot teach the same thing as you do in a classroom and move it to a Zoom meeting. I participated uh, two years ago in uh, edX we were given by the Council of Higher Education specific money to develop online courses as edX is doing it. Mm, it was a, yeah. a most important experience for me to see. First of all, it's very important that the team is working, not a sole lecturer. So I had a team of, we were uh, six professors and five technical support people to develop mm. this course. No way that the outcome would have been the same if we didn't have this group and this money. So a team was working on the course. 
the lectures that I gave were eight to 12 minutes, which is very different from the way that you, you lecture at the classroom and so on. Mm. So basically the whole development of curriculum is so different when you move to online and most teachers do not have any experience. You know, when I started to teach at high school even, I was 22, 23 years old. Uh, so I even didn't have a certificate yet of, uh, of a teacher, but I had an experience of myself as a student from uh, elementary school to university. I had the yeah. good models of teachers that I could imitate. Most of us don't have any experience in online teaching. We cannot imitate anything. It's something that we are doing for, from a start and we are trying by trial and error to find the, the right way. So I believe this mm. is part of the problem worldwide. So uh, no doubt people have done a very good job in some cases, uh, but you're saying that in your experience with the edX course, it was the fact that you had a team around you, uh, including educational technologists that actually made that possible. So do you think how part of effective online teaching or distance education is that team approach? You, you do require others to support you in your online teaching. I believe very much so. You know, the, the, one of the innovation when I wrote my first book, so I uh, found eight different innovative features of the UK Open University. And one of them was the team approach. And I, I remember reading the book of uh, Lord Perry, when uh, Walter Perry, when he said that he interviewed people to become faculty at the Open University, and he told them that they will not have the academic freedom that they enjoy in a regular university because they will have to work in a team. He said that some of them said, thank you, it's not for us. So basically the idea of a team is that you have a little bit to give up on your academic freedom. And this was one of the innovative features of the Open University, which we also adopted. But in the years, you know, my first course we were 13 people developing this course. 13 people, my first course in Open University. Now, in most cases, a new uh, faculty comes, they say, develop a course. So maximum, uh, he or she will have an assistant. So because it costs a lot of money to have this team. And I believe to develop good, we see it also in the MOOCs, uh, edX and Coursera and so on, that to develop a very good course, you need a team of professionals that are also experts in, of course, disciplinary experts, but also in educational technology and so on, for sure. Sarah, um, what research would you most like to see? So you've got a fairly good view of the literature in the field. What's missing? What, what sort of research would, um, I guess, most inspire you at the moment? First of all, as I said, is that, that too little research is done on a macro level of mm. institutions and systems. Uh, mostly it's about classrooms, two, three classrooms and so on. So I would like to see research that is more at the system level, macro level. I would like to see more research on e-teaching, which is currently, you, you know, a lot of when they say student center, sometimes it irritates me because they say as children, <laughs> children should be in their place, not in the center. And students should be in their place, not in the center. So students mm. have a role and teachers have a role and it's not the marginal role. I think that the, the role of teachers in online teaching now is much more demanding, uh, even as compared in their classroom uh, mode. So basically I would like to see much more on e-teaching. And I would like also to see how collaborations, good collaborations work and also even analyze sometimes failures. You have mentioned now that in New Zealand you are merging 
many institutes, 70 something mm. like that. Mm. So it's very difficult to merge and collaborate. And I think this is going to be the success of the future. If you succeed to collaborate, because the phenomena that they call NIH, not the National Institute of Health, but not invented here, is a phenomena that mm. very much uh, kind of characterizes academics. They do not count on something that was developed in another university. But if you take the open educational resources and you take the MOOCs, wonderful things, not everything, but wonderful things were developed. Why to start everything from a new? So you can devote your energy to other things by adopting something that it was done somewhere else and it's wonderful. So I think not enough is done of it. Many open educational resources and MOOCs are totally wasted not used by the academic world enough. Yeah, so focusing on those macro issues, uh, making sure that we get the context right so that good practice can follow. Yeah. So Sarah, you've had a very long career and you've done some fantastic work. Can you name two people who have perhaps inspired you across your career? Um, One whose work or perspective is significantly influencing you and one who you think otherwise might have an important perspective to share? You know, before I looked at the list of whom you interviewed, so I wrote, of course, all the names of uh, John <laughs> Daniel and Alan Tate and yeah, Gary yeah. Anderson, but you already interviewed them. So I would mm-hmm. mention uh, two, two other people. One is the Uli Ulrich Bernard, mm-hmm. and he uh, is responsible in Eden for, for granting prizes for young researchers. So he very much is engaged in promoting research of young researchers in distance education. And Mm -hmm. I think he even established a special organization for that. So so it might be interesting. He's already retired from the university, but he's doing a lot of interesting things. Mm -hmm. And somebody else is Irina Volungevicene who was the president Mm -hmm. of Eden, and she's doing a lot of research. She's young, relatively, but I think it might be also interesting to interview her. Sarah, it's been a real delight catching up with you. Um, You've done some brilliant work, and I'm thrilled to be able to still be citing your work today. Uh, Thank you so much for agreeing to the podcast and for being a leader and legend of online learning. It was a great pleasure for me too, Mark. Thank you. You can learn more about Professor Guri Rosenblatt and her work from our website. That concludes this episode. Be sure to go to our website, www.onlinelearninglegends.com, to follow up on this episode's guest. You'll also find links to others whose ideas continue to inspire and teach online learning professionals, and you can subscribe to future interviews. If you know of a leader or legend we've not yet talked to, please do drop us a line at onlinelearninglegends at gmail.com.